Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court broadcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I am not Jordan Rubin. Jordan is out once again, uh, still tending to his uh, new child. Uh, I am producer David Schultz, and we'll be talking about what the Supreme Court has left on its docket uh, for the remainder of this term. And Kimberly, it's a lot. Yeah, spoiler alert. It's a lot. <laughs> um, right. In addition to, you know, abortion and guns, which we've been hearing a lot about in the last few months, there's a lot of other big cases that I think any other term, they'd be the cases that we're talking about, um, you know, throughout the term. But this year, it's just like there's only so much bandwidth that people have. And we're going to be getting to that uh, in a little bit with our guest. But uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about first is Memorial Day. Um you and I are taking a vacation, uh, which is not unusual, but the Supreme Court is also taking a vacation, which is unusual. What's going on here? Why are they taking next the whole next week off? Um, I don't know. So next question. Okay. <laughs> no. So let's get. Uh, let me step back a little bit, right? So the Supreme Court, you know, they go from October to generally around the end of June. The Roberts Court has been pretty good about getting out all of its opinions by the end of June. That slipped a bit during the pandemic, but what hasn't, right? So um, you know, they usually take you know May and June just to get out all of their opinions. We have often multiple opinion days, particularly in June, where we get, you know, maybe three, four, five opinions that are not unheard of. Um, And, you know, you would expect the first week of June to be one of those solid, you know, we're going to get a lot of opinions this week, maybe two or three days. Um, But they said, nah, we don't, we don't feel like it. Um, We're not going to issue opinions. And I, have tried to look back. I don't think that's happened since Roberts has taken over, that they've just decided not to issue any opinions this weekend. And part of the reason is because they backload a lot of their work. So the Supreme Court has issued 28 opinions in argued cases, and it's still got 33 more to go, so more than half of its work to do. And as we're going to talk about it with our guests, and as everybody who's been paying attention to Supreme Court knows, these are like in really big cases. This isn't just like... Not that habeas cases don't matter, but, you know, these are in cases where you know the justices are going back and forth with many dissents. There's a lot of disagreement, a lot of um, working out, you know, even to be done within the majority, um, how they want to reason things out and frame things. So it just seems like a lot of a lot of work and odd that they're going to take this week off um, and not issue any opinions. So, Kimberly, does that mean that if they are taking this week off, that means they are not going to be taking July 4th off? In other words, are we going into July here? I mean, I think that's a really big possibility. And, you know, I think this whole term has been a strange one at the Supreme Court. We've seen a lot of... (laughs) Yeah, I I wonder why. (laughs) We've seen a lot of sharp elbows among the justices who are normally very collegial refer to themselves as a, as a family. We've even started getting from Justice Thomas some indications that all is not, you know, peachy keen within the, within the you know, the chambers. And I just feel like that's probably, you know, been how we've gotten to this place where we still have so many really big cases outstanding. And then, of course, with the leak, there's been an investigation that's currently ongoing by the um, Supreme Court Marshal's office, and we don't really have any indication about how that's working, but it seems to me a reasonable probability that that is also holding up the circulation, if not the investigation itself, maybe the way that the justices kind of 
they may be a little more guarded in the way that they circulate these opinions given, you know, like the leak. Uh, bad vibes at the Supreme Court, uh, but good vibes with our guest that we'll be talking to, who <laughs> is a really awesome and cool person. Who uh, will be we be hearing from, Kimberly? Uh, we're going to bring on Jamie Santos from Goodwin Proctor. Uh, she's been on our podcast before, uh, and we're happy to have her on again to talk about what other major cases the Supreme Court is going to decide this year. So hello, Jamie. So... You know, everybody right now is understandably really focused on abortion and now on guns with the recent elementary school shooting in Texas. But there's a lot more on the docket this term that we're still waiting on. But a lot of those cases, they're just such big blockbusters that potentially, you know, touch so many aspects of our lives. What is it that are kind of sort of sleeper cases for this term that stand out to you? So I think there are a few cases. There's uh, there's some administrative law cases, in particular a case that uh, will give the court the opportunity to potentially um, gut the Chevron Doctrine, which is essentially like governs how the administrative state conducts its business. Um, there are a couple of big religion cases that are really important. Um, there's also the uh, Remain in Mexico MPP case that is important both because it has a practical impact, but also because it has to do with you know when and how incoming administrations have to follow what outgoing administrations do when they don't really like what what the prior administration did. So I think those are all really important cases. And then the 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 big EPA case that was you know a two two and a half hour argument um, earlier this year. Right. So let's dig into a few of those. So you've talked about, um, you know, at the top, the administrative law, and then just now the EPA case, I tend to kind of sort of bunch those together as both potentially really big administrative law cases. But they're, they're touching on very different sort of aspects of administrative law, at least to me. Can you explain kind of what's at issue in the EPA case and kind of how that relates to, you know, the vaccine mandate? Um, that we heard before and emerging doctrines there. And then maybe we could switch over to the Chevron case, which I think is really flying under the radar that most people, you know, haven't really picked up like, hey, this could be a big, big case. Yeah. When I tell people that one of the sexiest cases from this year is about Medicare reimbursement rates, they just don't believe me. But you're totally right. It's very true. Uh, so the the EPA case, it's West Virginia versus EPA, um, and it is about the EPA's regulation of greenhouse gases, but it's also about this doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine. Uh-huh. Um, and I think what, and we'll probably talk about this, what we saw from argument is that there are a lot of major questions about how the Major Questions Doctrine works uh, that the justices really don't agree on. Um, but, but basically, this case was about whether the EPA, when it develops emission standards, whether it can do so only on on a source by source or plant by plant basis, or whether it can do so on a more systemic level by essentially giving states standards that they have to meet, and then states have to figure out how to get there, which may or may not include just shutting some plants down altogether because they wouldn't be able to reach those levels on a plant by plant basis. Yeah, so I think this is really one of those really interesting cases that not only has major implications just within the case itself, right? How can the executive regulate or, or you know, work to rein in climate change? But then also the implications, you know, the court is to kind of expand this major questions doctrine and, or, or really whatever it has to say about it could affect all areas of administrative law, which, of course, you know, everything we do touches on administrative law. 
It, it does, and I think if you you know said that to someone practicing law seventy years ago, they would say, "What are you talking about?" But it's <laughs> it's absolutely true today. And you know, I think one thing that was interesting to me about this case, and that I'm uh, still remain a little confused about, and I wonder what will happen when the opinion comes out, is that Justice Gorsuch has been a big proponent of the major questions doctrine. He's mm-hmm. mentioned it in so many cases this year, even that don't really have to do with that that doctrine. But he was almost silent during this whole argument. I don't think he really asked uh, many questions at all about it. So I'm curious why, why he's kind of a sleeper on this one. Um, Yeah, I do wonder this case, I think, you know, for good reason, we're all watching it. But there's so many problems with this case and the justices actually saying something major about the major questions doctrine, right? I mean, the biggest thing that sticks out to me is like, there's no rules in place. They've all been kind of abandoned and the Biden administration is working to do something else. So it's, it's kind of like looking to see if the executive has the authority to do something that it hasn't already done yet. Um, yeah, and the other piece of it that's really interesting is that usually when we're looking about how major questions works, we look at what is the impact and would it have this really detrimental impact. And mm-hmm. one thing that the SG said a whole bunch of times during the argument is, listen, the uh, the states already met these standards that this whole that the the rule that was displaced was uh, what those standards required decades ahead of time. And so if we're sitting here wondering about if this is going to have a hugely transformative effect and it's going to be impossible to satisfy, you know, that ship has sailed. It already happened. Um, But that's not, oddly, that's not what the case or the argument was really about. Right. You know, this kind of brings me this idea that the justices may not uh, say, you know, make kind of big moves in this case has me kind of wondering, you know, that was really when we saw Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh get nominated to the bench, I thought, whoa, okay, we're going to see major changes in administrative law. I I don't get the sense that they've made, they really pulled the trigger on those major changes while they have or they're getting ready to. In other areas, of course, we all know abortion and guns. I mean, is that your sense as well? And and if so, like, why not? Or are so, we just waiting for the EPA case to come down? I mean, that may very well be. I think there's a weird through line between this EPA case and Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which sounds kind of weird. But um, you know, the the Chevron doctrine, which is this doctrine of deference to agencies when they're interpreting ambiguous statutes. Uh, there have, it's been around for a long time, and there have been a number of conservative justices who have voiced dissatisfaction with it. And I think the question that most of us have isn't, is that doctrine going to be cut back? It's, it's The question is, is it going to be completely destroyed, or is it going to be cut back little by little, slice by slice, like mm-hmm. we expected Roe versus Wade to be cut back until until the leaked opinion issued and then and then who knows what's happening now. So what I think is probably happening and what I might expect to happen is the Chevron doctrine being cut back, you know, piece by piece, little by little, uh, until we until it doesn't really have much force. And I think we see that both in the the Medicaid case and in the EPA case that, you know, when are we going to defer to agencies? When are we going to decide that agencies have too much authority? Um, and all of those questions are really wrapped up together because I think if agencies have what what the justices feel is an enormous amount of, mm-hmm. of authority, then maybe we shouldn't really be deferring to them when they're making these huge policy judgments um, and they're unelected and unaccountable. Well, that's a perfect segue into, you're making my job very easy, into the Medicare case. Can you tell us, I mean, like a very high level, <laughs> what's going on in that case? And I mean, that's this is another area where, or another case where they don't have to say anything really about 
the Chevron doctrine or do anything with it, but they could. And it's just kind of wait and see what will they do, right? Well, and not just they could, but, you know, at least four justices clearly really, really want to say something about Chevron. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll I'll say at a high level what the case is about. And it's hard to stay super high level uh, because this case is kind of complicated. But it's it's a case about how the Department of Health and Human Services can set Medicare reimbursement rates for um, for drugs for hospitals. And so the statute gives two ways of doing so. First, HHS can gather uh, survey data from hospitals to determine average acquisition costs. And then it can set these rates based on those acquisition costs. And it can set them for different hospital groups. They, they could have different rates for different groups. But then if it doesn't gather survey data, um, the statute said uh, says that the HHS has to use the drug's average sales price plus mm-hmm. 6%. And then it says, as calculated and adjusted by the secretary as necessary. And what happened here is that there was a a set of hospitals that service impoverished communities. Um, And under this program, it's called the 340B program, um, drug manufacturers have to sell drugs to these hospitals at really steeply discounted rates. And uh, HHS found out that essentially using this average sales price plus 6% number was creating a huge windfall for these 340B hospitals. And so the agency said, we don't like that, and we're going to change the reimbursement rate to be average sales price minus 22%. So they didn't undertake a survey, but they seemed to take a cost-based analysis. And the agency says, essentially, the statute says we can make adjustments, and this is an adjustment. And the hospital said, cutting, you know, slashing $1.3 billion is not an adjustment. That's called legislation, and you can't do that. Um, And so that's kind of – Chevron comes in, or it could come in, because if the the statute can be read both ways, then the agency could get deference on what it's doing. But each side essentially says there's no Chevron deference issue here because the statute is absolutely clear in our direction. Uh, Nice. That's always – that's always great. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll tell you one thing that's super funny about this case is that um, AHA, the American Hospital Association, it had a whole bunch of amicus briefs filed that were really championing overturning Chevron. Um, but AHA did not take that position. And actually, uh, at argument, Don Verrilli, who was representing AHA, he was asked a whole bunch of times, like, well, yeah, but don't we kind of need to overturn Chevron? Like, come on, if we really think it's ambiguous. And he kept pushing back and then finally gave the most begrudging yes I have ever heard in the Supreme <laughs> Court. Like, yes, you'd have to do that. If that's what it takes for us to win, fine. But I counted four justices who either wanted to overturn Chevron or um, dramatically cut back Chevron. Uh, And I think two of the justices, Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh, had a kind of compromise position um, that would basically allow courts to use Chevron, but only as a last resort. And I feel like that's probably the next step in in Chevron's slow path towards destruction. So we talked about admin law and kind of how that's progressing quite differently than um, abortion. You know, one seems to be going really quickly, one more along the Roberts Court of being very incremental. I kind of view religion as this kind of more in line with the admin law approach that it's just kind of slowly, slowly, slowly creeping one way um, with the Roberts Court. And I think the cases that the court is hearing kind of show how far how far we've come just taking these little steps, right? So I think, you know, in 2005, when the Roberts Court first started, the idea to think that states would have to fund religious schools might have been, like, mind-boggling. But that's what we're up against here, right? I mean, that's one of these cases that really seems like that might be what the Supreme Court says. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that is really interesting to me about all of these religious cases, and there's there's Carson versus Macon, which is about school funding. Mm-hmm. There's Kennedy versus Bremerton, which is about prayer in school. And there's one case that was decided already, Shirtlift versus City of Boston, which is about government speech. One thing that's super interesting to me is that you hear these arguments and the justices are you know, largely incredulous about what local governments and schools are doing, essentially saying, Mm -hmm. like, how could you possibly do such a thing and think this is okay? But what I think these governments and these, you know, government entities have been doing is they've been dealing with a, a slowly moving doctrine of religious freedom and the free exercise clause and the establishment clause that has been moving, a constantly moving target Um, It's been kind of a mess. The court has never overturned really any of its prior decisions. It keeps just kind of, you know, morphing them and trying to make the doctrine all make sense. And it really doesn't. And so I think we see these local governments that are really trying to do their best faith effort to comply with the Constitution and prevent them from being sued for getting too entangled in religion. And in the process, what the justices are seeing now is religious discrimination. And the justices say, you know, how could you do this and think it's okay? And the answer is usually we'll read this line of this opinion from 30 Mm -hmm. years ago or, you know, because you're not overruling your decisions, you're just creating confusion and, and, and these entities don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Right, right. I think, you know, one thing that you you've touched on here, but I just wanted to spell it out a little bit more for listeners is this idea of this tension that the Supreme Court's been working on between, you know, the free exercise clause, the right to, you know, practice your religion freely with, you know, without discrimination and kind of on the flip side, um, the establishment clause, which says that governments can't get too entangled in religion and how those all kind of mesh together. And I was looking over the cases for next year, um, kind of like looking for like, what are we, what are we going to be doing next year? And I had forgotten that the the justices are going to be hearing this 303 creative case that really gets to the heart of this, right? Which is like, how do government anti-discrimination laws and, you know, their hopes to prevent discrimination then somehow morph into discriminating against religious groups? And I think you described it as just like perfectly a mess. Like, who knows? Yeah. And, and I think one thing that another thing that's interesting about about all of this is that I think there was kind of understood for a long time to be what Justice Kagan and others have called play in the joints, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. uh, governments don't have to provide school funding um, to religious entities, but they can if they think that it's appropriate as long as they're not, you know, outwardly endorsing uh, a particular religion and as long as they're not discriminating against particular religions. And so I I think that that these schools are thinking uh, that, you know, we have some play in the joints. And it's not actually clear anymore whether there really is play in the joints. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing that is clear to me from all of these cases is that the the justices do not um, will not sanction uh, a decision from a government or from from a school that is based on the belief that schools can't provide you know funding for schools or they can't permit um, coaches to pray in their you know maybe free time maybe not. Uh, and that if that's the basis of this de- of these decisions, that they're, these governments are creating these rules because they feel like they're going to violate the Establishment Clause, that's not correct anymore. And the justices seem to want to correct that misconception. Um, and, and, you know, th- at least some clarity there might actually be useful. But mm-hmm. I totally agree with you that this is super incremental. 
all of these religious religion cases are incredibly fact intensive and all of the decisions that have come out over probably the past five maybe to ten years have all been really cabin to their facts and i think the cases from this term as well provide this opportunity to you know if the justices want they could totally overhaul you know religious freedom doctrine or they could issue these super super narrow decisions that are very cabin to the facts Mm -hmm. uh, of these particular regimes and then things will just continue to stay a mess I, i suspect that we'll stay in the latter category but but we'll see. Yeah, you say these cases have been cabin to their facts, but that's like until they're not, right? And so I'm thinking of that case a few terms ago where the discussion was, does a government have to provide funding for a religious school to pave, repave its playgrounds, right? Yes. So nothing to Trinity do. Lutheran. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And there was a specific footnote that says this, this is all we're reaching. We're not reaching beyond, you know, paving a playground. We're not going into school funding. And then lo and behold, a couple terms later, we're in school funding, right? We're exactly the yeah. place they said that we weren't in. Absolutely. Um, and and the Carson um, case is interesting because this isn't even a general voucher program. Like some states have general voucher programs where we're going to give you the choice if you don't want to go to public school, you can use these vouchers for private school. And in that situation, there may be, uh, it may make more sense to say, if you're just going to be offering to pay for private school, you can't take religious private school off the table. But Maine's system is a super strange one. It's not a broad voucher program. It's this very tiny program intended for people who live in rural areas where there's no public school. And so it's not the, the state really subsidizing private school education. It's the state giving what is supposed to be a quasi public education in a private school setting because there's no public school. And so, you know, we we might see a footnote that says this only <laughs> applies to this one weird situation. And then, you know, two years from now, we'll, we'll get a broader voucher program case. Right. Um, so these have been really super interesting. And I don't want to forget about the Remain in Mexico case that you also mentioned. Uh, but maybe we could just touch on it pretty briefly. And I think this case, to me, really stands out um, with sort and it hasn't been a long time since Biden has been in office, right? We're like halfway through. Um, but man, the Supreme Court seems really hostile to the Biden administration. Am I just seeing that wrong? Or is it because we're coming off of the Trump administration where, you know, the Supreme Court seemed, at least to me, to be very friendly to a lot of the claims they were bringing? But I don't know. What's your sense of this? I don't disagree with you. I suspect that um, Noel Francisco had a lot of really good celebratory dinners after argument and that uh, Elizabeth um, Prelogger has more frustrating (laughs) days where uh, it feels like, you know, the questions that she's getting are a lot more hostile. And I think that has to do in part with the changing composition of the Mm -hmm. court and with the types of policies that um, the Trump administration was defending. I do think there is a potential for this case to be different, and maybe this is just my own um, optimism. But, you know, so so this is a case about whether the Biden administration has to continue this policy of essentially um, placing uh, people who, asylum seekers who come to the United States by land in Mexico or another contiguous country while they're awaiting their immigration hearings. Um, and this is, and this is tens of thousands of people per month in some months. So it's a really big deal. Um, and I think one thing that's very interesting about the case is that this court has generally been very strict on immigration, on, uh, the construction of, of immigration statutes. And I would say seems generally uninclined to interpret the statutes in a way that would give discretion not to attain, uh, detain people coming into the country. But 
This case does actually have pretty serious ramifications for international relations, which is something that came up a lot at the argument. Right. Um, so like Texas's interpretation, which which would basically say you have to kind of send everyone to, to, to Mexico almost, uh, would require the United States to coordinate with Mexico. And it and 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 this interpretation would essentially give Mexico really frightening leverage during any type of negotiations. And I do think that's something that could give pause to any of the conservative justices who spent time in a presidential administration. Um, and that is both Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Roberts. So it is possible that that international relations piece could tip the scales slightly, though I, I, I don't necessarily think I heard that too much from argument, so we'll see. Well, let's go ahead and just end on that, um, you know, high note from you, uh, which may be in a low note for others, but, you know, that, that's the way it goes. Um, but thank you so much for joining us to talk about um, what I like to call, uh, don't forget that the Supreme Court's also doing these other major things. Um, <laughs> there's yes. a lot going on this term. This term is insane. And 33 opinions left to go. I mean, they're going to have to average one a day for the next month before uh, to make it by the end of June. But not before they give me a week off. So <laughs> I'm going to try and enjoy it. And yes, catch up. enjoy your week off. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for joining us and um, hope to talk to you soon. You too. All right. That was really fantastic, uh, especially the detail about you know, Noel Francisco having a great time and Elizabeth Prelogger having a not great time. Um, Kimberly, any last words? <laughs> last words as if the end of the term is going to kill me. Um, no, uh, you know, everybody rest up next week because it's going to be it's going to be a heck of a ride after that. Um, and of course, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. The killers of Berta Caceres had every reason to believe they'd get away with murder. Her work as an environmental activist won her the admiration of celebrities in California, politicians in Washington, and the indigenous communities she worked alongside in Honduras. It also earned her powerful enemies. On a new podcast from Bloomberg Green, Blood River follows a four-year quest to find Berta Caceres' killers. Join journalist Monty Real and the team from Bloomberg Green as they untangle false leads and mishandled evidence, taking listeners deep into a sector of international development that's marked by high-level corruption and rampant violence. Blood River debuts Monday, July 27th on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. <laughs>